Welcome to the Collective Leadership Podcast. In this episode, we are featuring session two of our Metro District Conference, In the Spirit. Our speaker is Pastor Rich Velotis of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. He's sharing with us on dwelling and beholding God. It was 2007. I was asked to uh, come down and lead worship uh, for uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle's Young Adult Ministry. And meeting me at the door that night was uh, this young man by the name of Rich Velotis, who uh, had a lot of energy, seemed very excited to welcome me to be a part of this group. And that became uh, the beginning of, of a good friendship. It was that next fall that I sat in a preaching class that he was teaching at Nyack College and ended up taking two semesters of preaching with him. And then we served together on staff at uh, New Life Fellowship um, when I was there for uh, a little while. And I have listened to him along the way and followed the, uh, the sermons that he preaches, but most of all, followed his life to see who he is. He's a man of God. He's a man of integrity. He's a man who presses into uh, what the Spirit is doing, and he listens for the voice of God. I am so glad that of all the speaking engagements he could have taken, uh, because he does speak a lot around the country, of all the speaking engagements that he could have taken, he chose to be with us tonight. And Rich, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, would you welcome with us Pastor Rich Velotis from New Life Fellowship. <laughs> Uh, good evening, everyone. What a joy to, um, to be here tonight. Um, Kelvin, I love you. You are a dear brother. Um, the Lord has raised you up for such a time as this, and um, I'm just thrilled to see what God is going to continue to do through your leadership and through the leadership of so many of you in this room here. Uh, coming here is uh, often like a family reunion uh, for me. I have friendships that go back some 20 years, uh, being a student at Nyack College. Uh, I went to seminary with some folks in this room here, and I've had many a conversation uh, with so many people here. And so to be back here is a real gift uh, to return. And it's a gift. Um, I'm grateful for the folks on the stage. I get an opportunity to uh, worship with them every Sunday. And so these, uh, these are the folks who, who lead at New Life Fellowship in Queens. And so uh, I'm just, it, this feels like home. This feels like home. And so here we are with that. Uh, I, was, I was stirred this, uh, a few minutes ago listening to Anson, listening to Shirley uh, share these stories of the Holy Spirit. And I, my heart was stirred. I don't know about you, my heart was stirred. And there are moments when we hear stories and people testifying of the Spirit's power and uh, that we need to be refreshed by that. And before I get into my message today, I, I thought uh, I, I, need to re- I often share my own story and my own journey uh, to remind myself of what God is capable of doing, Amen. the breakthrough that God is able to uh, make realized in our lives. And I want to just share a little bit of the Spirit's uh, history of breakthrough in my own life And then I want to lead you into a particular text that has been really foundational and formational in my life. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I actually grew up in a home that was quite uh, indifferent to Christianity. Uh, My father uh, was a weekend alcoholic. Uh, My mother was a moralist. My father thought he was too bad to go to church. My mother thought she was too good to go to church, and so consequently, I didn't go to church, and none of us went to church, but from time to time, my my parents would send me to church uh, with my grandparents who lived down the block. I grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, and my my parents would send me to church with my grandparents, this, this small Latino Pentecostal church called Arca de Salvacion, Ark of Salvation. And at first, I thought they were really interested in my spiritual development. I thought they were interested in my life with God. But it turns out, because this is a Spanish Pentecostal service, they have four- and five-hour services. That's good child care. And so um, you get a lot done in four or five hours. 
And so they're doing laundry, they're watching movies, they're going grocery shopping, all while I'm in church. And so I would go to this church, and from time to time, I would come out in the church plays. I'd come out in the Easter plays and Christmas plays, and that'd be the only time my parents would come to church. I would always be the lame guy who Jesus healed, the blind guy who Jesus healed. And I'd, 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 I'd act it out all good. My mother would be crying in the back, oh, my son, you know. And, but that'd be the only time that they would go to church, but they would send me to church on a regular basis. By the time I was about 10 or 11, 12 years old, I, I said, Mom, I, I don't really understand what's happening. Uh, I, I didn't really understand Spanish too much growing up. They, they call, I, I just knew Jesus had to be Puerto Rican. They say, call him Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Uh, bienvenido, todo lo pueden en Cristo que me fortalece. I just knew that he had to be Puerto Rican. And, uh, and so uh, by the time I was 12, I really didn't grasp what was happening. And I said, can I, can I just stop going to church? And they said, yes, you can stop going to church. And it was that moment that I felt I was saved. I was saved, saved from the church. And I didn't have to go anymore. But as the Lord would have it, some five years later, as a 17-year-old, I found myself back in church. And the reason I found myself back in church was because I started to date a pastor's daughter. And that'll get you back in church very quickly, very quickly. The pastor said, the only way you can date my daughter is if you come to church. I said, I'm there, pastor. I'll, I'll be there. But he never said what time I had to go to church. And so I, I'd sneak into this church. It was, a, it was an Assemblies of God church in, in Queens. And, and I'd sneak into the back. And, and when he came out of the service and he was a pastor, he, he'd say, Rich, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, what did you think about the sermon? And I was like, fantastic. It was great. And he'd say, what was it about? And I would say, sin. It was an Assemblies of God church. Sin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hell, uh, uh, the salvation, you know, I'd say that every week. That'd be my running thing every single week. And as, as it went on for a couple of years, I was invested in this relationship. The relationship came to an end, and I was so heartbroken. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the geography of New York City. I was in Queens. My heart was broken in Queens, and I decided to walk home to Brooklyn, which is a good uh, hour and a half, two-hour walk. And I'm just moping. I'm sad. And I get to Pitkin Avenue where I live, and, and I go into my home, and, and I'm the eldest of five. And I would find out that my four siblings were not home that night. I came home and I saw my father who was coming off of a hangover and he was watching the Jets play. Not a good combination at the time. And, and, and my mother was um, uh, in the kitchen cooking. And I said, hey, where's, my, where's, our, where's Jason? Where's Melissa? Where's Michelle? Where's Laura? And they said, oh, they're at church. The church that I used to go to when I was a lame guy, when I was blind as a kid in the, in the, school, in the church plays. And so I said, why are they at church? We were in the church going family. Why are they at church? And they said, well, there's some evangelist there or some special speaker, and they were invited, so they decided to go. And so I decided to follow them as well, maybe thinking that someone would pray for me in my broken heart, my broken teenage heart. And so I, I walk to this church, and as I walk in, in good Latino Pentecostal fashion, they're singing, and they're, they're singing about the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus, and, and that when the name of Jesus is, is called upon, demons have to flee. And so as I'm walking in, they're talking about, Satan, you have to go as I'm walking in. And I'm thinking, uh, is me? I, I just got in, you know? And, and, and they're singing about it, and the power of God is, is so strong in that place. Typically, the church would have about 30 or 40 people there, but there was actually a great move of God where, where it was 100, 120 people that are in this small uh, storefront church in Brooklyn. And as I walked in, about 10 minutes later, uh, my father would walk in with my mother, which was very surprising because they never went to church. And what was even more surprising is how they came in. My father came in with sneakers and no socks and pajama pants and a tank top and a Mets jacket and a Mets hat. Very strange walking into this church. And my mother came in with him. I would say uh, later on, Dad, uh, how, why, why did you go to church? It, especially looking like that. Why did you go to church? And, and what he would say would be so uh, startling for me in that moment. He said, I, I came because when you left the house, I heard two words. And I don't know if the words were audible or the words were inaudible, but the two words were, follow him. And he said, I don't know if that means follow Jesus or follow Rich, but Rich is going to church to see Jesus. And so he just followed me 
into the church. He walks in the back, and this preacher got up, and he started preaching from Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones. And he begins to say uh, that Ezekiel says to, the, to God, Lord, can these, uh, can these bones live? And, and Ezekiel, God says that to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel says, Lord, I don't know. And God says, why don't you prophesy to these bones? Speak life to these bones. Breathe life into these bones. And this preacher got up and says, some of you are like this valley of dry bones. You're dry, you're desolate, you're fractured, you're disoriented. Your families are looking just like these bones, but God could breathe life into those bones. And this preacher said, if you want the breath of God, if you want the breath of life, Jesus wants to breathe life into you. And he said, if you want that, just respond to this call to receive the breath of God. And one by one, the family members began to respond. My brother responded, and a sister responded, and Another sister responded, and my other sister responded, and I responded, and my mother responded, and my father responded, and the cousin responded, and another cousin responded, and the uncle responded, and an aunt responded, and another aunt responded. We're Puerto Ricans. We're a big family. Uh, uh, another cousin responded. Another cousin responded. Another uncle responded. Uh, in that one night, in this small storefront church called Arca de Salvacion, uh, 15 people came to Jesus Christ that night as God breathed life into us. God's presence was so palpable and powerful. Listen, if my dog was there, my dog would have said, can you breathe on me too? Can, and I'd, I had a chihuahua named Milo. He was a bad dog. And, and God would have breathed life into him as well. We got home that night, and it was very awkward. We never cried in front of each other, so no one's making eye contact at home. And, and so we decided to go back to church the next week. And the week after that, and the week after that, and after that, my grandfather would begin to disciple me. My grandfather, who lived right down the block from me, he was a man of God's word, and, and, and he would say, why don't you come to my house uh, a few times a week? I, I want to teach you the Bible. And I would come about uh, three to four times a week for two to three hours each time for eight months before he died. And he would disciple me in the scriptures. And he would, and the day that I said, Grandpa, I can't come over. I wanted to play basketball. He said, write all these scriptures down. And, and he would have me write all these scriptures down. He said, the next time you come, we're going to talk about it, but make sure you memorize them first. And I said, oh, what are you talking about? You know, I, I just became a Christian. But he taught me how to love God's word. And in particular, a particular psalm that I want to talk to you about. He, he taught me this psalm, and, he, and he, he, he called me to memorize this first psalm, Psalm 27. And this has become really a life psalm for me, a psalm that I committed to memory as a 19-year-old, a psalm that I come back to over and over again. And I want to preach out of this psalm and show you that when we open ourselves up to God, to dwell with God, to behold with God, we open ourselves up to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to deepen our lives, to form us in powerful ways out of which we can offer ourselves as a gift to the world. Psalm 27 says these words, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war shall rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. For in time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted above my enemies round about me. Therefore, shall I offer praises in his tabernacle of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord Jesus Open our hearts to you tonight. Open our ears tonight. Open our eyes tonight. Give us a heart to receive every gift of the Holy Spirit. And may we walk out of here transformed by the power of the living God. May we be renewed, strengthened, anoint us, Lord, for the work that you have placed before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. 
Over the past summer, for three and a half months, I was on sabbatical, getting away from the everyday life of ministry and leadership. And over the course of my near four months of resting and writing and praying, I spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to dwell with God. What does it mean to abide with God? In a world that is turbulent, in a world that is fractured, in a world that is polarized, what does it mean to dwell well with God? And as I was in prayer and as I was in the scriptures and I was trying to be with God, I was reminded of a story told by Parker Palmer, the great Quaker author. Parker Palmer wrote a book called The Hidden Wholeness. And in this book, he talks about farmers in the Midwest who would prepare for blizzards by tying a rope from the back door of their house out to the barn as a guide to ensure them that in the event a blizzard came unexpectedly, they could return safely home. And these blizzards came quickly, he would write, and fiercely, and they were highly dangerous. And he writes that when their full force was blowing, a farmer could not see the end of his hand or her hand. He would write that many froze to death in those blizzards, disoriented by their inability to see, wandering in circles. And he would say that if they lost their grip on the rope, it became impossible to find their way home, and some of them would even freeze and die of, of, of being frozen to death within feet of their own home. Not realizing how very close they were to their safety. And so they needed a rope, something to tether them, something to bring them back home, something to bring them safely home in the midst of an unpredictable blizzard. Now, as I thought about that story, I thought about our lives before God. I thought about the world that we live in, because whether you know it or not, brothers and sisters, we are in a blizzard. Whether you see it or not, I know it's October uh, 14th, but we are nonetheless in a blizzard. We are caught in a blizzard of political idolatry. We are caught in a blizzard of racial hostility. We are caught in a blizzard of uh, technological insanity. Uh, we are caught in a blizzard of social and individual anxiety. I don't know if you feel it, but I feel it from time to time that I'm in a blizzard. And I often don't know how to find my way home. And many of us have lost our way in the process. We find ourselves in a blizzard and we don't know where the rope is. How do I find my way home? How do I live from a place of rootedness? How do I live from a place of centeredness? And what I know about life is this, blizzards come. Unexpected blizzards come. The blizzards of pain and suffering. The blizzards of busyness. The blizzards of conflicts. The blizzards, the blizzards of disappointments. The blizzards of suffering and loss. How do we find our way home? Wherever you're at, the way we find our way home is by dwelling well with God, abiding in God, having a life, a deep life with God out of which we live in the world. What does it mean to be in God? It was the late Robert Mulholland who, who helped me see this. He said there's two ways of living in the world. We can be in the world for God, or we can be in God for the world. And there's a fundamental difference. You can be in the world for God, or you can be in God for the sake of the world. You can do the first without dwelling in God. You can't do the second. And we are invited to live a life that dwells well, that abides well, in God. This is what we see in this text. As I think about Jesus, as I think about his disciples, I think, how, how do we have a life that dwells well with God? How do we have a life of deep abiding prayer, a life of deep communion with Jesus? And I thought about this because the only way that we can have a, an effective witness in the world 
is if we are truly abiding in him. And I know this because I've read the New Testament and I've seen Jesus' disciples. When you look at Jesus' disciples, they were with him for three years for a long time, often hours per day. And one of the things that I noticed is even after all that time with Jesus, when push came to shove, came to shove they had significant gaps. I did some theological math. Let me show you by what I worked out. I, didn't, I, wouldn't, I wasn't a major in math, but I did some theological math. And I want to just spell it out this way. If the disciples spent eight hours a day for 365 days a year for three years with Jesus, they would have spent 8,760 hours with Jesus. And even after all that time with him, they had significant gaps. And we think that we're going to get people to change by coming to church once, once a week for an hour. <laughs> we think we're going to change by leading ministries and preaching from time to time. With all that time that they had with Jesus, they still had significant gaps. And yet, what does it mean for us to abide in Jesus, to live our lives in the Spirit, to dwell well with Him? I am convinced that this comes as we dwell and behold the living God. This is what we see in Psalm 27. Psalm 27 begins with these words, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. These are words that are about battle, they're about war, they're about pressure, they're about conflict. They're perfect words that describe ministry. (laughs) Perfect words that describe leadership. Perfect words that describe what it means to live in this world. There are pressures in this psalm. It begins with war, it begins with conflict, it begins with lots of pressure. I know what it's like to be surrounded by conflict. I know what it's like to have a lot of pressure. I happen to pastor a a very uh, uh, beautifully complicated congregation. It's a nice way of saying it, isn't it? That's a very nice way of saying it. We are in the center of Queens. We, we have over 75 nations represented in our congregation. 123 languages spoken at the nearby hospital. To take out $20 at the local ATM is about 20 options to take out $20. It's a dizzying experience. But beyond the, the complications of that, what I have seen over and over again is that the tensions in the world find their way into the life of our congregation. And so if there's something that happens in the Philippines, we feel it in our congregation. If there's something that happens in Indonesia, we feel it in our congregation. If there's something that happens in Central America, we feel it in our congregation. We have Black Lives Matter protesters. We have Blue Lives Matter congregants. It's complicated. When the World Cup comes around, lots of drama in my church. (laughs) When the Olympics comes around, lots of fighting in the church. And so I know what it's like to be surrounded by war and battle and conflict. And this is where David is surrounded with as well. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord, is the, light of my, uh, uh, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat of my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Conflict is everywhere. In the constant flow of information, there's conflict. You get on Facebook for three seconds, there's conflict. You know how to start a fight on Facebook? Post a comment. Wait. That's how you start a fight on Facebook. Anything. Just post a comment and wait. We are surrounded by conflict. We're surrounded by battle. We're surrounded by powers and principalities. And so David sees this, and yet he has a life that's grounded in God, that's not dominated by fear. Don't you want that kind of life? David is surrounded by all kinds of battle, all kinds of warfare, and he's not dominated by fear. And then in a blink of an eye, it's interesting because David is in the battlefield in the first couple of verses, and then he takes us now to a different scene. He takes us to the scene of a sanctuary. And it makes sense why David could be steadfast 
in the battlefield. Why? Because David knows how to have life in the sanctuary. He, he knows how to be in the battlefield because he knows how to behold God. And so he, he's, he's on the battlefield, but, but then David, he, he goes into the sanctuary. In the blink of an eye, it, it, it shifts. He's attending to the presence of God. He says, one thing have I desired, and that will I seek after. I love that David does both. He desires it, and he seeks after it. Because you can desire something but not seek after it. Or you can seek it but not desire it. That's called like religion. That's called obligation. That's called just I'm just going through the motions. But David says, one thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. One thing have I desired. He wants to attend to the presence of God. This past summer, over my sabbatical, I, I spent some time at a monastery praying with Christian monks five times a day. They wake up 3.30 in the morning or so, and they're praying. And, and at one point, I was talking to one of these 87-year-old men who has given his entire life to prayer for decades. And he said, Rich, I'm going to teach you a prayer. I want you just to hold on to this prayer during your week here. And I want you just to, to, to just meditate on this prayer. And he said, the prayer very simply is this. And this is against my, our sensibilities, our American sensibilities. He says, the prayer very simply is, I am nothing. I have nothing. I desire nothing except the love of Jesus. He said, Made that, let that be in your lips. I am nothing. So un-American, isn't this? I, I, I have nothing. I desire nothing except the love of Jesus. The, the prayer starts out with nothing and ends with everything. One thing have I desired that I may, here's the word, dwell. Dwell. I love that word. It's a word that comes up throughout the scriptures, in particular in the New Testament in the Gospel of John, dwell. In the Gospel of John, you see Jesus inviting his disciples to dwell with him, to stay with him. And there's one word that comes up over and over again in the Gospel of John that gets at this notion of Jesus wanting to dwell with his people, and, and the Greek word for it is the word meno. It's, it's Jesus saying, would you meno with me, dwell with me? And, it, and it's a word in the Gospel of John that comes up not five times, ten times, fifteen, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty. It's a word that comes up in the Gospel of John 63 times, to dwell with me. John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Dwell with me. As I began to think about what it means to dwell, I, an image came to mind. Uh, a few uh, times a week, I make myself a cup of tea. And as many of you tea drinkers know, there are two ways to make tea. Two ways to make You can... Uh, the first way of making tea is you're a dipper. You're, 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 you're a dipper. You, you're, you take the tea bag in and you pick it out and it's in and it's out. By show, any dippers in the house? I'm a dipper. Any dippers in the house? And I, I see that hand. I see that hand. Okay, okay. And, and you dip in and you dip out. And, 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 and some of us, I, I think that, that, that's a good image for, for our relationship with God. We dip into prayer. We dip out. We dip at the church. We dip out. We dip into the Bible, we dip, we dip out, we're, we're dippers. But then there's another way of making tea. is, is not to be a dipper, it's to be a, a dweller. <laughs> Where you just let the tea bag sit there. And, 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 and the tea bag, when, when you're dipping, that's a lot of work when you're dipping. Your, your, your transformation is on your terms now. But when you're dwelling now, oh, I feel this now, when you're dwelling now, you're letting the, the hot water do its work. And, and I was talking to someone, and he said, I, I don't like to, to let it dwell there because the tea gets too strong. I said, oh, here it is. It gets too strong, and, 
And that's what happens when you dwell with God. You dwell a little bit with God. The, the presence of God gets a, a bit strong. You, you find yourself confessing sin. You find yourself forgiving people you hate. You, you find yourself living the life you can't live in your own strength. Jesus invites us to dwell. Oh, I feel that, to dwell with him. One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why does David want to dwell? Because David wants to do one thing. He wants to behold. He wants to behold. I want to dwell because I want to behold. And it's a beautiful word, this word behold. It's also a word that comes up in Scripture often. Behold the Lamb of God. It's a word that comes up over and over and over again. Two words, dwell and behold. You want to open yourself up to the Spirit in your life? Dwell and behold. Dwell and behold. Now, here's the thing about beholding. Transformation comes as we behold. Because in a very real way, you become what you behold. I had a cousin, uh, his name is Matthew, I have a cousin, his name is Matthew, and when he was a teenager, um, he, he would play Grand Theft Auto, uh, Grand Theft Auto, and, uh, and I know none of you ever played that, but, but uh, Grand Theft Auto, you know, they're carjacking people, and, and you're killing people, and, and all that, and I remember one day he was playing uh, Grand Theft Auto for hours, for hours, and, and it was time to go, and, and I said, you know, uh, Matt, uh, it's time to go, and, and I just, I tapped him on the shoulder, and, and he just said, get off of me! I mean, like a demon was in him. Get off of me. And I, and I said, he's been beholding this thing for three hours. And he's now becoming what he is beholding. Uh, isn't this what Paul says as well? As we behold the face of God and, and we, we are now transformed from glory to glory, we become what we behold. We, we think transformation comes by behavior, uh, changing our behavior. No, it, it comes by as we change what we behold. And when we behold, now the behavior changes. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. I may dwell in the house of the Lord to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now, we don't have a problem beholding. We know how to behold. When we are on our computer screens, we know how to behold. When we are on our cell phones, we know how to behold. Some years ago, someone took a picture of me and my daughter uh, just at a, at a, just beholding together. Just a, it was a family affair. Just, this is what you call bad parenting. Just, uh, it wasn't her phone. I tr trust me, it wasn't her phone. She was three. Uh, but, but we know how to behold. The question is not whether we know how to behold. The question is, are we beholding the right thing? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Because we give out of what we behold. I think about Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, one of his great phrases about preaching, but I think it extends to all of life. Thomas Aquinas says, what preaching is at its essence is contemplating and sharing the fruit of one's contemplation. And this is the image that Aquinas gives. Aquinas gives the image of, of beholding God, of contemplating God. And, and, and that's what, this is what beholding is. I'm contemplating God. And, 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 and this kind of preaching when, and, and life, essentially, when you're moving from contemplation, where, where you, now you go to this point and you say, would you like some of that? You, you are behold, you are contemplating and sharing the fruit of one's contemplation. This is what the world needs. People who behold the face of Jesus and out of which say to the world, would you like some of that? David beholds God. How do we behold God? How do we live a life in which we behold God? I want to offer just four ways for us and maybe the Spirit will land on one for you. But I want to offer four ways forward. So that we just don't walk out of here having a good time, but the Spirit of God is beginning now to form us so that we're beholding him in the mornings. We're beholding him at midday. 
before we go to bed, we're beholding him. That our lives are marked by beholding his beauty. How do we behold? Well, first of all, to behold God means that we are called to befriend silence. To befriend, to make friends with silence. I got rebuked by a monk one day. I'll tell you the story. I invited a monk to our church, and uh, there's a picture of him on the screen. And um, I invited him because I wanted our congregation to hear about having a deep life with God formed by prayer. And he came into this church, our church, and we were singing songs like we sang just a few minutes ago. Uh, This is a world very far from his world. And I'm thinking, he's going to love this. This is going to be so amazing. He's going to be so impressed. And and as we're singing, I'm looking over, throwing the thumbs up and all that there. And and at the end of the service, we go down to the lobby to greet people. And I said, "Um, how how did you enjoy it? And he said, can I have a word with you, Rich? And, I, and I'm like, when, when an 80-something-year-old monk says, can I have a word with you? It's like, this just sounds ominous and bad. And so he goes, he goes I have a question. Um, how come you don't practice what you sing? And, um, I, and I said, you can leave now, old man. You can go back, you can, you can go back home. And, and, and what he was getting at was this. We were singing a song out of Psalm 46 that says, I will be still. And know you are God. I will be still. Know you and knew you are God. And he said, you sang this song. And then right after that song, you went right into the next song. How come you don't practice what you sang? He said, this could have been a great opportunity for you to be still and know that God is God. Why don't you practice what you sang? And I was deeply convicted. And what he was getting at was to behold God often means we have to learn how to befriend silence. Now, you could often say, you could say very truthfully that your ability to be silent with someone is often um, a gauge, a measure of how intimate you are with that person, how well you know that person. If I was in a car with some of you who I don't know and we took a long drive, it'd be very awkward for us to be silent together. We'd be thinking about anything. Uh, the weather, see the Jets win yesterday against the Cowboys, fantastic by the way. Uh, did you, did you, it'd be so awkward to have silence. But when you know someone and you know them well, you can be in a car with them for hours holding silence together because of your level of intimacy with that person. What does it say about our lives? when we can't be silent with God. Maybe, perhaps, we're not as intimate with God as we think. And so we are called to befriend silence. I I think about what Mother Teresa says. Someone uh, interviewed Mother Teresa one day and said, Mother Teresa, when you pray, what do you say? And she says, I don't say anything to God. I listen. And the person was very excited. Oh, if if you're listening, what does God say when you pray? And she says, "Um, God doesn't say anything. God listens. (laughs) And the reporter was very confused. (laughs) Listening to God listen? And she said, there's no other way I can explain prayer except listening to God listen, beholding God. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Moreover, how do we behold God? Well, brothers and sisters, it means we are called and invited to normalize boredom. How do we behold God? By normalizing boredom. And what I mean by normalizing boredom is this, that prayer is often uneventful that nothing happens often. And when we expect something to happen all the time, we live what Brennan Manning said. Brennan Manning asked a very provocative question. He said, do you worship God or do you worship your experience of God? And there's a difference. Do you worship God or do you worship your experience of God? 
How do you know you're not worshiping your experience? Well, when you can be okay with boredom, where it's uneventful. It was John of the Cross who said that when we reach a certain point in life, the deeper things lie under the surface. And it is when we stay there that something powerful happens beneath the surface. I think about uh, a story I heard uh, about normalizing boredom. It's a story I heard, and I want to give you this scenario, and some of you might identify with it. Let's say that your mother is living in an assisted living facility, and you live close by. You're there five days a week, every night after work for a couple of hours, and over the course of a year, how many uh, uh, goose uh, pimple producing, goosebump producing conversations do you think you're having with your mother? One, two, three maybe over the course of a year. And the conversation you're having with mom is essentially, how are the kids doing? Good. Are you eating your food? Yes. And, and that's the nature of the conversation. And from the outside, it seems like nothing is happening. Now imagine that you had a sibling who conveniently lived in California and didn't have to visit mom every day after work. And when that sibling comes to see mom, mom is crying. Oh, you're here. They're crying. Mom is so happy. He's crying. And you're seeing them both cry. You want to kill them both now. And, and, and you're seeing them cry. And, and any observer from the surface with some of the outside would say, what a relationship those two have. But when mom dies and the funeral comes, who really knows mom more than anyone? The one who's been with mom in the boredom, in the uneventful nature of mom, eat your food. And this is what it's like with God. Do you worship God or do you worship your experience of God? And we are invited to normalize boredom. For the sake of time, I want to go into one more, and I want to have us behold God in worship. I want to just take us to the fourth one. Just go to the fourth slide for us, for us here. And how do we behold God? By remembering that God is always beholding you with eyes of love. We behold God as a response to God having God's eyes on us. And I want you to hold on to that phrase and an image I'm going to give you in a moment. God is always beholding you with eyes of love. Two weeks ago, I went to my son Nathan's kindergarten class. And um, it was, Dad, take your child to school day. And National Father, take your child to school day. And so I... I went and um, I saw a number of fathers in their uniforms and, and with presentations. I'm thinking, what, what in the world? I should have brought my Bible. You know what I'm saying? And open your Bible, children. And, 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 and so I, I get there and I, I walk in and there's a bunch of dads and the kids are just so excited to have their parents in that environment. It's a different environment to see your parents in the classroom. And as I walked in... Um, my son was there, Nathan, and um, as I was looking around the class, I looked at him and saw that he couldn't get his eyes off of me. It was actually a very tender, intimate moment. He couldn't get his eyes off of me. He, he, was, be, he was beholding me. And, and I want to show you a picture of how he was looking. At, look, let me show you a picture of how my son was, that's how he was looking at me, that's how... Oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? And, and he was just, be, and at first I'm saying, son, pay attention, son. Pay, pay attention to the, look the teachers that way. But, but, but he was just so happy to see me there. He couldn't get his eyes off of me. And in that moment, there was an exchange actual of love that I had with my little five-year-old. And I could assure you, he doesn't look at me like that at home. I could assure you. I could assure you. Uh, <laughs> But, but in that space, he was, he was beholding me. And then I started beholding him. 
And it was a beautiful exchange of love and intimacy. And as I thought about that, I thought, this is how God looks at us. This is how God beholds us. We're not the only ones doing the beholding. Before God knew you, before, before you knew yourself, before you were born, God knew you. He was beholding you in your mother's womb. He knows your story. He, he knows where you've been. He knows your journey. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows your failure. He knows your addictions. He knows your ups and your downs. And God is beholding you with eyes of love. Why do we behold? Because he beholds us first. Why do we love God? Because God loves us first. He beholds us. And so David knows this about God. God is beholding us right now with eyes of love. And if God is beholding us with eyes of love, he invites us to do the same. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Amen. Let's pray together. We're going to sing in a moment. But I want us to behold God for a moment in silence. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, we are to be silent before the word because God should have the first word, and we are to be silent after the word because God should have the last word. I want to give us a moment to be silent, to behold the beauty of God, that right now God is beholding you. God knows your pain, your suffering, your disappointments, and he sees you with eyes of love. Let's take about a minute, and then Kelvin will lead us into just this next portion of our gathering tonight. Jesus, you behold us with eyes of love, eyes of compassion, eyes of mercy, eyes of grace, eyes of truth. Lord, we confess that we have spent our time beholding so many other things. And as we behold other things, our eyes are often not placed on you. And yet as distracted as we are, your eyes remain steadfast on us. You can't get your eyes off of us. And may our lives, Lord, be marked by dwelling well with you deepen our life in prayer. Help us to befriend silence. Lord, in the hustle and bustle of leadership, ministry of parenting, of working, it's so easy, Lord, to not behold you, to not dwell well with you. Lord, give us a desire to seek you more and more. And when that desire is not there, Lord, would you grant us great discipline to dwell with you? And as we behold you, Lord, would you transform us? Would we become 
more and more like Jesus. And may the power of the Holy Spirit work powerfully through us. That when people see us, they see more of Christ. As we prepare for a time of ministry and worship, let your spirit, Lord, fall in this place. Transform us from the inside out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the prayer team comes, and listen to Rich's message. And there was one word that kept coming to mind over and over and over again. And it was the word repentance. Where are the places that we've been dipping that God is calling us to dwell and behold? Behold his beauty. Inquire in his temple. Where are the places in our lives where God is calling us to repent of simply dipping in and out? of his presence. Where are the places where God might be putting his finger on a heart and saying, uh, you've been beholding, but you've not been beholding me. I'm beholding you, and you're missing my gaze because you've not been beholding me. And because of that, <laughs> that which I want to pour into you, We want to worship, and then we want to invite you to come. And if the Spirit has been speaking to your heart, and you know there is a place where you have been beholding, but you've not been beholding Him, tonight He gives the opportunity for you to come. He wants to redeem that space and set your eyes straight again as we worship. The team is here.